So over the course of today, we've spent many hours cultivating mindfulness, this capacity of the mind to be present and to be aware, to know what we're doing as we're doing it. And as you may have discovered, at at times it can be surprisingly hard work. It sounds so simple to just be present with your experience. But I think most of us have developed some pretty strong habits of not paying attention to our experience and many different strategies for distracting ourselves in various ways. So sometimes mindfulness can feel like a real going against the grain practice, as they say in the Zen tradition. And it can take considerable time and effort to instead establish the mind in this different way of relating to our experience. So I mentioned that because it's possible that perhaps some of you might at some time today have asked yourself, why am I doing this again? Why did I think it was such a great idea to go on retreat? Perhaps there was a burst of enthusiasm when you signed up, but now that enthusiasm is a very distant memory. And I know from my own experience that especially in the first few days of a retreat when the body is stiff and sore and tired and the mind is dull and irritated, it can be very easy to lose sight of what are we actually doing here. But actually this is a good question to ask and to keep asking because uh, we need to keep coming back to what is our purpose, what is our intention, what is the aspiration that you wrote about uh, on just last night, the opening night. So I'd like to zoom out and explore a little bit the bigger picture, the context of these teachings to hopefully help shine a bit more light on what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because as, as I said this morning, mindfulness is sometimes presented as a kind of a magic wand that you just wave over any aspect of your life and hey presto everything's going to be wonderful but as we know already that's not always the case so we need to develop mindfulness in the service of wisdom and compassion which is one way that this overall practice is sometimes framed Many of you have heard me talk about these two wings, the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. And from that metaphor, we see how they both need to be in balance if we're going to fly. And because we're in the insight tradition, many of us have a more highly developed wisdom wing and the compassion wing is not quite so strong. But we're going to be exploring some of that, uh, those qualities in the coming days. For now, though, I just want to pick, on the, pick up on this theme of wisdom to say a little more about it, because in English, wisdom can sound like a very static, fixed quality. And I think we have a tendency to think that, well, some people are naturally wise, and some of us, well, just not so much. We tend to think of this as just something we either have or we don't. So for me, at least, it was very uh, empowering to hear in the Buddha's teachings that wisdom is something we can actually cultivate, we can train in it, we can develop it. 
And this, uh, rather than being a lobsty, lobsty, that's a new word, a lobsty, <laughs> a lofty abstract quality, it's actually something immediate and accessible and cultivatable. So the Pali word for wisdom, panya, more literally means to know correctly. And for me, that sounds a lot more doable. Yes, I can know correctly. So again, to point out the difference between the English and the Pali, the English word wisdom is a noun. It's a fixed, static, object kind of word. Whereas panya means to know correctly. It's a verb. It's something that we can actually do. So for this reason, the English monk Ajahn Suchito, he prefers to translate wisdom as discernment because, again, it has that quality of doing. And he says, wisdom in Buddhism is primarily a relational experience rather than a storehouse of knowledge. One is wise about cause and effect, which is actually another way of understanding right view. And hence, one is alert to what's happening and how one is being affected. Because of this, the term discernment may in many cases be a more useful one. In other words, wisdom is primarily something you do so that an opening to transcendent clarity may occur. So wisdom is a practice. It's a training. And in the Buddha's teachings, it can be developed quite systematically. And it's said that there are three uh, distinct stages or levels to this deepening of wisdom. And I think it can be helpful to know what these three are, because then we might how to we might understand how to help the wisdom along if it's got a little stuck at one of these stages. So these three levels are first the wisdom that's acquired through learning, and then the wisdom that's acquired through reflection. And finally, the wisdom that's acquired through meditation. So wisdom that's acquired through learning, the first stage is the understanding that comes from hearing the teachings or from reading the teachings or from being given instruction by a teacher. And it's sometimes translated as borrowed understanding because it comes from outside. And it's mostly about getting factual knowledge. It's a more intellectual kind of understanding. And this level of wisdom can inspire us to follow a spiritual path, but it doesn't usually by itself lead to the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So perhaps some of you might remember that initial spark of inspiration you got when you first read a Dharma book or heard a Dharma talk that really resonated for you. And it can be very exciting and motivating, but it doesn't usually last too long. We have to keep um, exploring the practice in order to keep that spark alive. And that ongoing exploration is what takes our wisdom to the next level. So perhaps to to get a slightly different sense of that, we can think of these different levels of wisdom in terms of how they come into the body. So the first level, the intellectual wisdom, the wisdom acquired through learning, it comes into the head. And so it's a a kind of a head-based understanding. But then as we keep exploring these teachings and learning how to put them into practice in our own lives... 
they start to drop down further into the body. As we engage with them, they start to come down into the heart. This is the wisdom acquired through reflection. We investigate the teachings in our own lives and then they become applied wisdom. And for many of us, um, that step is a little foreign because I think in mainstream Western culture, we tend to think of knowledge as just being about this getting of facts. And I know um, I shared with some of you for myself that I think it was not until I sat the three-month retreat at IMS and I was some way into it and I was listening to a Dharma talk and I had this sudden realization, oh, they're telling me things to do. And up until that time, I'd just been hearing the talks as, oh, yeah, nice idea, yeah, 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 yeah. But it wasn't actually being taken on board. So this understanding has to drop down and be taken into our own lives. And we see this uh, instruction very clearly in the Buddhist teachings known as the Kalama Sutta. Some of you may be uh, familiar with that discourse. This is an instruction that he gave to a group of people called the Kalama people. (laughs) And the Buddha came to their town and they basically met him and said, you know, we have every other week some new spiritual teacher is arriving here and telling us that what they're teaching is the right thing and what the previous guy was teaching is the wrong thing and then the next guy comes and says the same and we don't know who to believe anymore. And the Buddha basically said, that's right, you know, this is a confusing matter and if you want to try and understand <clears throat> what teachings to take on board. He said, don't go by reports, in other words, by reputation of a teacher. Don't go by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture or reasoning, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. So these are all different ways that we might um, think that somebody's speaking the truth. But he said, went on to say, when you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. So he's really saying don't take anything on face value. Only when you've tried it out for yourselves and found it to be useful, then you should take it on as your teaching. And he said that about his own teachings. Don't take what I'm saying on unless you have experimented with it in your own life and found it to be leading to uh, happiness. So when we take this in and explore it in our lives, it can drop down into the heart and we don't have to think about it quite so much. So just as a very simple example of this, I can see a shift in my own life from at the beginning of um, coming into contact with the teachings and reading the five precepts. And the first one, you know, is not to kill living beings, including insects. And in the beginning... I remember thinking, well, that's a little bit obsessive-compulsive. I mean, ants, come on, it's not that um, 
And so I would, uh, you know, occasionally use fly spray or something unless I had a Buddhist friend coming to visit and then I'd be a little more careful. And I'd have to remind myself, oh, that's right, I'm not supposed to kill living beings. But then when I came on retreat here and later on, in the, especially in the mornings when it's damp and misty, there would be a whole trail of snails and slugs on the path up to the dining room. And at first, first day, I think, oh, this is such a nuisance. I'm going to have to pick my way through all these things. But then as the days wore on and the mindfulness got stronger and I spent more time with these living beings, I genuinely wanted to not step on them. And then there was a time when I actually did and I felt this real pain in my heart because I'd stepped on a snail and squashed it. So there's just this very basic example, but a shift from that early having to think, oh yeah, not supposed to kill, to this just very natural and intuitive, of course, I don't want to step on a snail. That's a very basic example and I'm sure you can all think of some from your own lives of how it starts from intellectual and then becomes more embodied. And then the last level is as we keep digesting and trying out these teachings and as we sit with them on retreat and really steep ourselves in them, we start to have the very powerful transformative insights that the teachings become more and more embodied. And I think of this as moving down to the gut. So in English, we talk about knowing something in our gut. It's like the understandings have become so digested that they're actually who we are. We don't have to think anymore. It's just how we manifest in the world. And this is really the wisdom that's acquired through meditation and really saturating our being. And we can have a sense of this um, in the development of our own practice. Perhaps you have had the experience of you know, early on in your practice, having one of those aha moments and thinking, oh, wow, yes, now I really get it. I didn't understand it before, but this now it really makes sense. And then perhaps we do a few more retreats and then we have another insight and we go, oh, wow, that's what they were talking about. What I, what I understood before, that wasn't it at all. Now I've really got it. And then a few more retreats go on and suddenly... Oh, what was I thinking of? I had no idea before, but now I've really got it. And so we can have this sense of how the wisdom is naturally deepening and ripening almost of its own accord through the practice of repeated exploring, engaging, contemplating and meditating upon. So this wisdom that we're talking about is... Uh, one aspect of right view or appropriate view, the first understanding in the Noble Eightfold Path. And really everything that the Buddha taught over the course of his um, 45 years of teaching is about developing these eight different path factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And I'll be saying a lot more about each of them over the course of this retreat but I want to just uh, give some context for it because I think it's significant that this was really the first teaching that the Buddha gave after he attained full awakening, full liberation under the Bodhi tree. 
And in the story of the Buddha's life, it said that he um, he spent um, he was born a prince, according to the mythology, and so he was able to live a life of complete hedonism, complete luxury, in a palace, a very protected life. And at the age of, I think, about 28, it said that he had a, a kind of an existential crisis and he realized this hedonism is going nowhere. He started to um, question what he was doing and he basically um, left the palace and went off on a search for something more meaningful. And he started to study the Dharma, the teachings that were available to him at that time most of which seemed to involve very hardcore ascetic practices, what by our standards would be pretty extreme forms of self-torture, really torturing and subduing the body, because this was understood to lead to some kind of transcendence. And the Buddha was a very good student, so he practiced these to their utmost until he was literally at the point of death. And he describes how he was so weak that he actually fell over on his face and couldn't get up. Fortunately, uh, uh, I think a milkmaid, a younger woman, uh, according to the legend, found him, felt sorry for him, fed him some milk rice, and he recovered enough strength to really question, what am I doing here? Is this actually useful? And he realized that he had got off balance. And the turning point came when he had a memory of being a young boy, aged about seven, and in this he remembered sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And because his mind was relaxed, he had a spontaneous experience of jhana, of deep absorption, unity of mind, that was very blissful. And so as... Fast forward now to him as a man who's just recovering from near death. He has this memory of this being a young boy and having a pleasant jhana experience. And he thought to himself, why have I been afraid of that pleasure, which is nothing to do with sense desire? Could it be that this is actually the way to freedom? And then he realized, yes, this is. So the role of pleasant mental experience was what ended up taking him not long thereafter into full liberation, to full freedom. And immediately, not long after that uh, liberation, he went off to try and teach what he had found to his five former companions. And he framed what he taught in terms of the middle way, finding the balance between on one extreme the hardcore asceticism and self-mortification practices on one end, and on the other, the kind of indulgent life that he'd lived in the palace of just um, fulfilling every sense pleasure that we can. And he went on to define the middle way as the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is what's keeping us in balance between these two extremes, is walking this Noble Eightfold Path. So I just would like to point out this need for balance is right there in the very beginning of the Buddha's teachings. And we can see this 
ways in our own practice that we tend to get off balance in various ways, to swing between extremes. And sometimes, I like to mention this at the beginning of a retreat, because sometimes we start a retreat with uh, what I think of as like an excess of striving. So yes, I'm on my, I'm going to really go for it. And it's not sustainable. So before too much long, we usually get uh, pretty exhausted and then we spend the next half day just sort of napping and taking it easy until we get our energy back. And then we have another wave of pushing too hard and burning ourselves out and then swinging to the other extreme again. So just to highlight that as a very common tendency, and I joke about it, I've joked with some of you before that this uh, syndrome is so common that I call it superhero to slug syndrome because we're constantly swinging from one extreme to the other. And when we look more carefully at it, often what's underlying it is some kind of fear, the fear that unless I make a 110% effort, I'm going to backslide and become a slug again, which ironically is often exactly what happens because that kind of energy is not sustainable. So for all of us, this is an invitation just to really pay attention to how much effort we're making, how much energy we're putting in, and try to find that balance, that middle point between not too extreme and not too lax. So again, uh, just coming back to the context of this teaching on the Noble Eightfold Path, I think it, it's a, perhaps a useful framework that when the Buddha had his uh, liberation experience, he took some time just to digest it, and then he went off to find his five former companions to try and teach them what he had learned and these five four former companions had actually rejected him when they heard that he'd eaten rice milk from a maiden because they were hardcore ascetics, you remember. And so the fact that he was no longer starving himself to them meant he was backsliding and he'd fallen off the path. So they weren't exactly a receptive audience. And I think the way that he tried to present the teachings to them is very interesting. He presented them in terms of a medical model that was in common use in India at that time. So he's really trying to connect with them in a way that makes sense. And he's, in a way, presenting himself as a healer, which he is not just a healer of physical illness, though, but you could say a healer of existential dis-ease, unease, or illness. So when he found these companions, he, he talked to them in terms of this four-part model that uh, healers and medical people use to, to treat disease. And with these four parts, the first step was to diagnose or to identify the illness, to understand its nature. And the second step was to identify what was causing the illness. The third step was to work out a cure for it. And the fourth step was to um, recommend a treatment to bring about the cure or to find a prescription for it. So those of you who are familiar with the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, you might recognize 
this uh, four-step process there. So the Buddha laid out this uh, his teaching on the Four Noble Truths using this model of healing. And what is it that he was healing? Basically, dukkha. And dukkha is usually translated as suffering. And I just want to say that that's not a particularly helpful translation because we can hear this word suffering and think, well, yeah, I've had my share of ups and downs, but I wouldn't exactly say suffering. But the Pali word dukkha that is translated as suffering uh, covers a much broader range of um, discomfort as well as what we might think of as ordinary suffering. So I'd like to read you just how the first noble truth is usually framed in a translation by Bhikkhu Nyanamoli. He says, suffering as a noble truth is this. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair are suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, suffering is the five categories of clinging aggregates. So we could probably spend the rest of the retreat just exploring that one paragraph. But what's important to keep in mind is that the word suffering really includes a broad range of types of suffering from the most extreme anguish at one end to just more basic discomfort at the other. And part of this is reflected in the etymology of the word dukkha, which I understand uh, refers to the hole at the center of a wheel that the axle uh, goes into. So those wooden cartwheels that some of you may know made of solid wood, they have a square hole and then a shaft that goes into it. And if the hole doesn't fit properly, then the ride is very bumpy. So we can think of dukkha as being this sense of a bumpy ride, of not quite being comfortable. So I I often like to ask, you know, we can see this even right now. And when you check your own experience right now in this moment, are you completely 100% happy, at ease and comfortable? Raise your hand if you are. No, so far I've never, never had anybody (laughs) raise their hand. So just to see, you know, when we really stop and look, there's often a sense of, well, you know, if I wasn't so sleepy, I'd be happy. If I could have had another cup of tea, I'd be happy. Or if only it wasn't so stuffy in here, I'd be happy. Or if only she'd stop using all those Pali words, then I'd be happy. Or whatever it might be, there's always something that's not quite satisfactory. And that too is dukkha. And dukkha is the dis-ease that the Buddha defined as the first noble truth. So this is uh, how the American uh, scholar monk Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about dukkha. He says, The Buddha starts with what is close at hand. 
with the suffering inherent in the physical process of life itself. Here, Dukkha shows up with the events of birth and aging and death in our susceptibility to sickness and accidents and injuries and even to hunger and thirst. It appears again in our inner reactions to disagreeable situations and events, in the sorrow, anger, frustration and fear aroused by painful separations, by unpleasant encounters and by the failure to get what we want. Even our pleasures, the Buddha says, are not immune from dukkha. They give us happiness while they last, but they don't last forever. Eventually they must pass away, and when they go, the loss leaves us feeling deprived. Our lives, for the most part, are strung out between the thirst for pleasure and the fear of pain. We pass our days running after the one and running away from the other, seldom enjoying the peace of contentment. Real satisfaction seems somehow always out of reach, just beyond the next horizon. Then, in the end, we have to die, to give up the identity that we spent our whole life building, to leave behind everything and everyone we love. So it can be quite sobering to hear the truth of dukkha presented like that. And perhaps you notice, I know for myself sometimes, it's like, "Mm, I don't know if I like that or not. But fortunately for us, the Buddha didn't stop there. He didn't just say, well, this is how it is. Suck it up. See you later. He said, there's a cause for this dukkha. And this cause is... uh, craving or more literally thirsting. So again, the translation by Jnana Moli, the origin of suffering as a noble truth is this. It is the craving that produces renewal of being accompanied by enjoyment and lust, enjoying this and that. In other words, craving for sensual desires, craving for being, craving for non-being. And again, this word craving is very strong. And we can think, well, you know, there's things I want, but I wouldn't call it craving. But this word craving, again, points to a whole range, a whole spectrum of just from that um, the most intense, addictive kind of craving at one end of the spectrum to just what I pointed to a few minutes ago, that basic sense of, oh, if I could just have another cushion, or if I could just have a bit more sleep, or you know, just that little wanting something to be other than it is, that also is craving. It also refers to the energy of not wanting, of resisting, of pushing away or rejecting. So it works in both directions. So, for example, in the last line, the craving for being and the craving for non-being. Non-being is that feeling of it's just too much, I've had enough, give me a break kind of thing, wanting experiences to stop. And craving for being is that wanting to be someone, to exist, to continue. And again, we can see this on gross and subtle levels. 
So it's possible that hearing all this talk about suffering and stress and distress and unsatisfactoriness and clinging and craving, that it can feel a little bit discouraging. And Buddhism is sometimes misperceived as a kind of a pessimistic view of the world. But I think that this is due to having a relatively superficial understanding of the Four Noble Truths because the last two truths are actually about the end of suffering. So coming back to the medical model, the Buddha references, the third noble truth is that there is a cure for dukkha. It's actually a treatable condition. And these are the words from the text. Cessation of suffering as a noble truth is this. It is the remainderless fading and ceasing, giving up, relinquishing, letting go, and rejecting that same craving, totally letting it go. And this is how we cure ourselves of dukkha, not expecting anything or anyone to make us permanently happy and not clinging to a fixed sense of self. This is me. This is who I am. This is mine. That identity that we spent our whole life building as Bhikkhu Bodhi described it. And of course it's easy to say, well, just stop clinging, just stop craving. But I think uh, if it was that easy, none of us would need to be here. It's actually uh, very challenging. So again, we're very fortunate that the Buddha gave us an actual prescription for how to do this. He gave us a path. And this is the fourth noble truth the way leading to the cessation of suffering as a noble truth is this. It is simply the noble eightfold path, that is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So this is the prescription the Noble Eightfold Path. This is how we cure ourselves of dukkha. And I'll say just a little bit about each of those factors to get us started, but I want to again just um, point out that this word right, as I said earlier, can so easily um, bring with it the shadow of wrong and this binary thinking of good and bad and right and wrong and black and white. So that's partly why on your Resource sheets I translated as appropriate rather than right, just so we get to hear these different ways of framing these um, path factors. So Gil Fransdell says, Sama can also mean proper, complete, and in harmony. When right is the translation, it's useful to think of it as meaning appropriate, as when we speak of having the right tool for a particular task. Because the path is made up of practices rather than beliefs, right does not refer to truths we're obliged to adopt or to moralistic judgments about right and wrong. So just to try to keep that in mind, that it's more about appropriate and in harmony than right and wrong and beliefs. So the, per, the first path factor of right view, we can think of it as appropriate view or wise view, is just on one level the basic uh, 
understanding of what leads to harm and what leads to freedom from harm. That's a very basic preliminary definition because all of the Buddha's teachings are pointing us to that understanding. What causes suffering? What helps us move away from suffering? That's the very beginning aspect of right view and it's really woven into all of the teachings as we'll be exploring over the coming days. And it's connected quite strongly to the second path factor of right intention or right thought, sometimes right resolve. And this refers to three quite specific intentions. The intention of renunciation, the intention of goodwill, and the intention of harmlessness. And these three intentions are intended to overcome their opposites the wrong intentions, which are intentions governed by desire or greed, intention governed by ill will, and intention governed by harmfulness. So given that right view is pointing us to what helps free us from difficulties and leads us to ease, on one level it's quite it makes sense that we want to be freeing ourselves from greed by practicing renunciation. We want to be freeing ourselves from ill will by practicing goodwill. And we want to be freeing ourselves from cruelty by practicing harmlessness, sometimes also interpreted as compassion. And when our minds are based in these skillful intentions, it's more likely that that then comes out of our mouths will be right speech, which is the third of the eight path factors. And on its most basic level, right speech is defined as not lying, telling the truth, in other words. But it also includes not only abstaining from false speech, but from slanderous speech, from harsh speech, and from idle chatter. So these are all verbal activities and then the fourth path factor of right action is about our physical our bodily expressions and our behavior in the world so here again it's quite specifically defined right action means abstaining from taking life abstaining from taking what is not given and abstaining from sexual misconduct So you might recognize the first three of the five precepts that we took last night. Not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse our sexual energy, in short. And then as a further extension of right action, the Buddha also asked us to look at how we are living our lives more broadly in terms of our earning a living. And this is a defined a little uh, simply by modern standards as not um, that our wealth should be acquired by legal means, not illegally, uh, peacefully, without coercion or violence. We should acquire it honestly, not by trickery or deceit. And we should acquire it in ways which don't entail harm and suffering for others. And elsewhere in the text it says this... um, is about also not trading in um, meat, poisons, weapons, slaves, 
and one other thing which I can't remember right now, but uh, more gross, uh, obviously harmful occupations are to be avoided in this factor of right livelihood. And we can open it out to look more generally at how are we living our lives in terms of what we produce and what we consume. So I'll be saying more about that uh, later on in the retreat. So the previous three factors are all about how we live our lives in the world. And the next three, or the last three, of right effort and right mindfulness and right concentration are the meditative factors, uh, qualities that we can cultivate very directly in meditation and on a retreat like this. So right effort is about the wise application of energy, as I touched into earlier, trying to find the middle way between the extremes on one side of self-torture and self-mortification or self-indulgence on the other side. And this right effort is applied very specifically in relation to overcoming unskillful mental states and strengthening skillful mental states. And then the seventh factor, right mindfulness or sati, that we were exploring earlier today. What makes it right mindfulness is that it's done in the service of the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind. It's done in the service of cultivating wisdom and compassion. And in the same way, right concentration is also grounded in the service of clear seeing. So just to say, uh, remind again that this word concentration is not a particularly useful translation of the word samadhi because it tends to give the impression it's about fixating or Um, striving to narrow our attention on something, whereas concentration actually rests on the capacity to let go, to keep releasing what's not useful and coming back to a more stable, calm, tranquil mind state. And then when the mind is really clear, remembering that analogy of the jar of muddy pond water, when the sediment has settled and the mind is clear, we have the best conditions for deep insight, clear seeing to arise. So that's a very brief overview of each of the eight path factors just to get us started. And i just like to uh, share Gil Fronstel's description of where all this is leading because he has a very clear way of summarizing what we're doing here. He says, the potential for practicing the Eightfold Path lies within us. When we practice the factors well, they transform us. They have the ability to reduce and even end our clinging, attachment, fear, hatred, and delusion. When this is done thoroughly, the Eightfold Path is not something we make effort to do. When we are free, there is nowhere we have to go to find freedom. Amazingly, when we live with this freedom, the eightfold factors are no longer practices. They become the natural expression of liberation. The eightfold path becomes who we are. So again, you might see this understanding of the wisdom becoming so fully embodied that it's just how we are in the world.
And I just want to uh, briefly acknowledge that for some of us, when we hear words like liberation or awakening or even freedom, they can sound quite remote or abstract or perhaps distant and unattainable. But in fact, if we really pay attention, we can start to notice moments throughout the day, especially on retreat, when the heart and the mind are at least temporarily or momentarily free of these harmful energies. And we can start to tune into these moments to help them stick around for longer so that over time they become more and more the default setting of the mind. And actually, if we really look, we might see that all of us already are experiencing these moments of freedom. It's just that often we haven't learned how to recognize them, to tune into them. Because as I've been mentioning, we have this um, default negativity bias in the mind that tends to see what's difficult, uncomfortable, painful, challenging, and so on. And to completely miss those more neutral or pleasant moments of ease and freedom. And I find this reassuring because uh, there's a passage by the famous Thai meditation master Ajahn Buddhadasa who made this point very clearly. He's talking about what he calls temporary nibbana. Nibbana is a word for awakening or freedom. He says, temporary nibbana nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements were with us day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Living things would either die or become insane. Become insane first and then die. One survives because there are periods when the fires of the defilements do not burn. Periodical or temporary nirvana keeps all of us alive and well and is a nourishing condition normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana? Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements or strong desires are absent. Our instincts inherently have such a quality. That is to say, we instinctively go in search of spans of time when the mind is free from defilements or desires. Whenever that happens, a little nirvana always comes in, and the phenomenon will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. So it's quite interesting to explore this sense um, that we have a natural orientation towards freedom. So we don't have to think of nirvana as being something far off and remote and distant. If we really learn how to look, we might see that there are moments, even if they're just nanoseconds, when the mind is temporarily freed from greed and from hatred and from delusion. So learning to recognize those moments clearly is part of what we're doing here and is part of wise view. And then over time, as we recognize them more clearly, they start to kind of become more and more the default setting of the mind. And it's really the development of the Noble Eightfold Path that helps that process along. So thank you for your attention. 
I know that was a lot of information and I hope that you will just let it wash over you and take whatever was useful and whatever wasn't. Just let it uh, go for now. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.